Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 11th, 2011, BK Corner episode number 12, The Comb Over. Hi everyone, Kevin England here. I'd like to welcome you back to the Beekeeper's Corner. It has been a while since I've posted an episode, and if you were here with us last time, you know that I had a few pet projects that needed a little FaceTime. Work is still crazy, but the soccer website for spring is online, and the new Northwest Beekeepers Association webpage is live, so that leaves a little time to get behind the microphone once again. I have said microphone propped up on a couple of computer boxes right here in front of me, so let's share what I have in store for you this time. In this episode, replacing honeycomb, is it time for out with the old and in with the new? We'll let you know what the researchers say. Can you hear me now? Hey, good buddy, got your ears on? Just how do honeybees listen? We'll get into the details. Psst. Hey, buddy. Want to know the inside secrets to CCD? I know the real answer. Come on over here. Cue the X-Files theme. We're going to touch on the chaos of reporting on CCD. And for this one time only, I'm going to share my take on what I think is going on. How do bees keep warm in the winter? They snuggle up to their honey, of course. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Bees make honey out of nectar that we can be sure of. I've got the detailed explanation of how the process works. Let's get to that local hive report. It was a warm New Year's Day after a terrible December. A lot of snow here in the New Jersey area, record snowfall and temperatures for the New Jersey area. And uh, on New Year's Day, we had a little bit of a break. It got up to about 40 degrees and we saw the bees active for the first time in 2011. They came out of the hive, did some cleansing flights, and also saw them bringing out some of the dead bees that had mounted on the entrance. It was actually very interesting to watch um, how it all went down. Some of them would just take the bees and nudge them off the bottom board till they fell to the ground. The other ones actually sat there and hooked the uh, legs together so that they could lift the bee, and they flew up, went out across the field, which was covered with snow, and then eventually just dropped them to the ground. And as you looked out amongst the front of the hive, you could see dead bees all over the place. And uh, they were doing their housekeeping the first day that it got warm on New Year's Day. Again, it snowed several times in January, and at one point we had about 19 inches piled on top of 6 inches piled on top of 3 inches. And I had to literally take the snowblower out from the driveway and roll up to the hives so that we can get into them to clean them off. One interesting thing that we noted was that the bees were creating so much heat inside the hive, it looked like that summer day where you could see the waves of temperature rolling off the hive from the heat they were creating in the very cold January air. There was one particular snowstorm, the 19-inch one, where the snow was up to the handle of the second box, almost to the top cover. And as I walked around the front of the hive, I had discovered that the heat generated from the hive was so much that it had melted the snow away from the front of the box on an upward slope, and the bees literally could come out of the hive through the mouse guard and fly out, and we didn't have to shovel it. So 
I thought that was pretty cool and it's a good indicator that the hives are you know generating that heat and staying warm now I just wish that the warm weather would come through said so that these bees could uh, get their cleansing flights and so that I could put some food in there I'm a little nervous about how much stores they have uh, they made it to February here so hopefully we keep our fingers crossed and warmer weather is right on the way we did see on Super Bowl Sunday another warm day up to 45 degrees and the bees were out for cleansing flights on both hives so far so good here for the spring of 2011 and uh, we're gonna head over to the state winter meeting tomorrow morning here in New Jersey going over to the Rutgers eco complex and gonna hear what's going on for uh, this year's beekeeping season so things are starting to ramp up here expecting the activities to get going local hive report check ready to go let's jump right into the feature segment replacing honeycomb as a novice beekeeper I always reveled at the frames of dark comb that came with the bees I purchased from beekeeping suppliers combs with a deep mahogany color stamped with the insignia of a real beekeeper for me it's a sign that the novice beekeeper has to be off to a good start as these bees are coming from someone who does this for a living yeah I know in a naive kind of way I aspire to have hives that are filled with frame after frame of dark well structured comb and maybe an insignia of my own someday as time wears on and since I've become wiser in the ways of beekeeping I start to realize that those silly notions of well-established comb are really sentimental at best and in fact it is probably in some ways a means for seasoned beekeepers to rotate out their old stock of old comb of course that's giving credit to the career beekeepers that they have time to think of such things so minimal in the grand scheme of their practice but whatever the case the question stands should we as beekeepers be more proactive about replacing our comb to answer that question I want to spend a few minutes reviewing some findings from a 2000 study posted from the Department of Entomology at the University of Georgia and provided by Jennifer Berry and Keith Delaplane so an introduction to the study the study set up 20 plus hives over the span of three years and employed either old or new comb in the configurations the test being conducted was to determine if the comb age impacted the honey bee colony growth and brood survivorship it took me a moment to grasp what they meant about brood survivorship when I was reading the research findings so I want to take a moment to explain that by brood survivorship I took it to mean the process by which the egg laid by the queen becomes a bee they measured the activity in the cells once an egg was laid and then tracked that if the egg resulted in a bee hatching the way that they did this was use a transparent sheet of acetate they placed it on the cell faces marked where the eggs were and then came back at planned intervals and checked to see if those cells progressed to capped brood the other things that they measured was the physical weight of the bees and by proxy that would relate to how big the bees were and the impacts to the overall hive in the context of adult bee counts and overall weight counts of bees in the colony at the end of the study 
Before going into the study findings, let me add some more depth to the backstory on the uses of mature comb. As comb used for brood rearing ages, the cells naturally become smaller. One of the reasons for smaller cells is that the silken cocoon left behind after a larva pupates becomes a part of the comb structure and the comb becomes a fiber reinforced composite product. Other items are mixed in as well and include fecal material deposited by the larval and pupas between their periods of molts. The net result of this is that the cell becomes smaller over time. One other characteristic of mature comb comes from the nature of the wax used in construction. Wax by nature easily absorbs many types of materials. Compounds that find their way into the wax can be positive or negative for bee development. For example, pheromones are stored in a comb and this is one thing that draws nurse bees to the cells to care for the brood. It is also one of the mechanisms that stimulates the colony to forage for pollen. The absorption can also mean though that undesirable compounds can build up in the hive such as fungal and bacterial spores, heavy metals, and even pesticide residue. So let's talk about brood survivorship. I said a moment ago that one of the measures checked was for brood survivorship. Brood in pupae or larva form have to communicate in a roundabout way to ensure that they are cared for. Part nature, part chemical communication, different factors contribute to whether brood is cared for by the nurse bees. First off, just the presence of a bee in development in a cell indicates that there is brood to care for. That is a given. But how does the pupa or larvae communicate that it is hungry? Mechanical signals such as the activity in the cell, the size of the pupa, and other clues provide indication that care is needed. As stated earlier, though, chemical signals provided by the brood are absorbed in the wax, and findings indicate that pheromones incorporated into older wax may improve survivorship by causing the nurse bees to spend more time in that area. Incidentally, in this study, they had a higher brood production in the new comb hives, but higher brood survivorship in the old comb. Interesting. So new comb, lots of bees. Old comb, higher survivorship of the bees that were uh, incubated. They explain this by indicating that the literature tells us that the egg laying rate of queens is highest in the new comb but apparently survivorship is higher in the old comb. So one more thing to share and an aha moment for me. The study shares that it is a natural phenomenon for bees in the wild to move brood rearing out of old comb and move it to newer comb as a hive grows. Seems nature guides colonies through the behavior to motivate bee rearing in new comb as they use the old comb for honey storage. Okay, Kevin Moment, switch gears and look how we, quote, manage bees. We do it the other way around, according to the study. Many of us try to get our honey in nice clean comb and reuse the old brood comb for brood rearing. It seems funny to me that we beekeepers have taken steps to go against how nature intended, and here's another example. 
and we wonder why the ecosystems of our hives seem imbalanced or are troubled in operations. Okay, put the safe box away. The particular journal article being reviewed had a reference to another journal article from the Journal of Apicultural Research, and it said this, Queens are able to distinguish between worker cells and drone cells by appraising the width of the cell with their forelegs. Going back to the original study, they go to conclude that the cell diameters in old comb are comparatively small when compared to the new comb, and thus an average reduction of cell diameter in old comb may have a negative effect on a queen's egg-laying productivity. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. Two more quick findings to cover, and then we'll see if we can make sense of all this. Emerging bee weight. The bees emerging from the new comb were on average 8.3% heavier than those out of the old comb. They don't go into whether this is good or not, just provide what the assessment is. I'd be interested in knowing if a bigger bee is a better bee. I'll have to add this to my questions to be answered pile for some future research. Hmm, I'm going to assume that there is data on this as I have to come across or I have come across notions that generations past thought that bigger bees were believed to make more honey. So again, note to self, put this on the pile. Adult bee populations? For me, the research is interesting, but one tenet of what we're always told to mind as beekeepers is have enough bees to overwinter. So this adult bee population result is really important to me. The three-year study concluded that the old comb resulted in lower populations. The counts were 3978 for new comb versus 3398 for old comb, or a difference of 580. The conclusion here is that the hives in this study had a 15% increase on bees on new comb versus old. So where does this leave us? The conclusions from the study is as follows, and I quote, Over three years of field study, honey bee colonies housed on new comb had a greater area of total brood, a greater area of sealed brood, a higher weight of individual young bees. Brood survivorship was the only variable significantly higher in the old comb. The bulk of evidence suggests that new combs optimize overall honeybee colony health and reproduction. These findings suggest that beekeepers should eliminate very old brood comb from their operations. End quote. You know, sentimental considerations aside, reviewing this research has given me some new perspective on my reasons for looking this up in the first place. I suspected that old comb was not in my best interest. I knew going in about smaller cells. You always hear about pesticides in the wax and other things that are reasons to replace old comb. New findings to me include the information about the chemicals transmitted into the wax that become part of the ecosystem that help the hive operate. I can't say that I ever gave that consideration. And I also always thought that the queen was the domain for pheromone and chemicals transmitted inside the hive, and now I have a new perspective. 
In addition, the disclosure that the bees migrate away from old comb in the wild as part of their natural progression seems to me that we have to evaluate our comb and rotate out our old stock. In a somewhat ADHD way my mind works, I am immediately on to what I could do with that old mahogany comb. <laughs> yeah, it's a Kevin moment. What if I made a mold and encased it in some type of resin? That would make a really cool tabletop. Hmm, take a note, Kevin. By the way, and there's always a by the way with research, it seems, you sometimes come across other related findings along the way of discovery. Tangential to the effects of old comb on colony growth and brood survivorship, I found the journal article that indicated that old comb is also a factor in varroa control. But a word of caution, it's probably against what most beekeepers have been led to believe. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but in the apidology, 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 A-P-I-D-O-L-O-G-I-E, I've read that all day long and I cannot figure out how to pronounce a journal, a journal devoted to bee science, I found an article titled, Old Honey Bee Brood Combs Are More Infested by the mite Varroa Destructor than our new combs. In my first years of beekeeping, there were notions that beekeepers were part of the Varroa problem because we were dictating cell size with the foundation we were buying. I will admit that I too was convinced at one point that I might need to try an experiment to get to smaller sized bees. The common belief that larger cells are bad comes from the notion that mites like drone cells and they are bigger, so bigger cells are evil. The article indicates not so fast. There are many more impacts to how Varroa choose where to nest besides the cell size, and the study seems to indicate that the factors we just covered, chemicals in the wax, that nurse bees are more prone to drop Varroa at brood cells, the pre presence of larval food and more could be the factors that cause Varroa to prefer old comb. In short, they had the conclusion that older comb meant more mites, but they couldn't quite tell why the mites had this preference. They went as far as saying that the discovery of mites preferring old comb could be exploited in some way to trap them. Much like we use drone comb. Interesting stuff. That's going to do it for this segment. Do note that we'll provide links to the journal articles discussed in our show notes. Show notes and past episodes can be found at our website, www.bkcorner.org. Do you have any thoughts to share about the use of old comb? Feel free to send me a note at kevin at bkcorner.org. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England. Can honeybees hear? Well, it turns out yes, but not in the sense that they have ears and receive sound. Here's how it works. Upon examination, a bee antenna has three segments. The scape, which is closest to the head, the pedicle, and the flagellum. At the pedicle-flagellum joint, there's a structure that allows for acoustically induced vibrations. An information article on the Rutgers Extension Center website had this to say about the discovery of how bees hear. 
It used to be thought that honeybees couldn't hear any airborne sound because they do not have pressure-sensitive hearing organs like our eardrums or similar structures on the legs of katydids. Because of this, scientists were puzzled about how workers could perceive the buzzing sound produced by other workers during waggle dances. About ten years ago, it was discovered that bees can indeed quote-unquote hear airborne sound in close range. This is through sensing the movement of air particles by hair-like mechanoreceptors on their antennae. Not only can bees hear, it turns out that this acoustic capability is an integral part of what we all know as the waggle dance. As a bee gyrates in the dance, they are using their wings and abdominal vibrations to send sound and air flows to the bee in close proximity. The foraging bees are using this information as a key aspect for determining what is being communicated. Oh, and on one other note about this, scientists discovered that the ability to detect auditory is found to be age-dependent. A bee's ability to detect sound, quote-unquote, is developed over age, and young bees do not have the sensory neurons to pick up on the message being communicated through the audible transfer. Interesting stuff. It makes one have to marvel at the wonder of the antenna design for the bee as it serves as a sense of taste, a sense of smell, and to capture sound. Simply amazing. On to segment number three, speaking of the great pesticide debate. Appropriate music for the commentary here. Thus far in this podcast, I have shied away from speaking on the topics of pesticides and the prevailing theories of what is killing the bees or causing CCD. I read the reports. I see the sensationalized articles about the neonicotinoids, and I'm following the news. I may occasionally brush past a topic on this podcast, but the dilemma is that I, like many other in the beekeeping community, honestly just don't know what to put out there. One tenet that I started with as a principle of this podcast is to do my best to avoid spreading the misinformation of others. If it is not from a source that is scientifically backed, I am cautious about airing it. Given that the jury is still out, Given that I am not a scientist, that I have no entomology background, that I'm not a chemist, I am lost on how to present the topic in a balanced and informative way. I met a beekeeper that was convinced his his hives were poisoned by neonicotinoids. He told me, and everyone he met, that his hives perished from CCD and that neonicotinoids were to blame. When I inquired with him on the side about the details that led him to the conclusion, he had very few. Someone had planted corn in his community, and the next thing he knew, all his bees were dead. Is he right? (laughs) Only one knows. 
I'm going to guess that someone has been planting corn in his neighborhood fields for years. So why exactly was this the year that was different from past years? All good questions. I can't help but wonder if he read the news and is now convinced that he's a victim. I've mentioned several times that we had a strong, vibrant hive that just fell apart last season. Was it CCD? Did I mention that the field next to my hives had corn planted in it last year for the first time since I've lived here? Or maybe, just maybe, did I squish the queen by accident? I have no idea. I mean, I do plan to ask the farmer this year exactly what he's planting, and just in case there are neonicotinoids involved or anything like that, I want to know. But still, I have no idea what happened last year. And I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and say it was CCD. I haven't mentioned my uh, commentary to people that could potentially be a case, but with no evidence to back it up, I need to be very careful. There are others focused on this topic and more qualified to speak on it. They also have far more resources to approach what they present with journalistic integrity. When they come to the table, I'll present what they find. Does that mean that I'm snobbishly ignoring all of the news? Heck no. In fact, I personally follow the podcast of Phil Chandler from BioBees.com. If you're not familiar with his work, Phil is a well-known beekeeper from the UK, and he's creating some excellent grassroots coverage of the pesticide and CCD issues. A recent interview on his podcast concerning the ability of neonicotinoids to permeate the landscape is something out of a science fiction novel. Very, very scary stuff to think about. You ought to check out his episode with Hank Tenekes. Although I've read some things about Hank, so again, I'm not disparaging, but you always have to do your research. I'm reading the Washington Post and many other sources, but right now there seems to be a lull on definitive answers. I'm not sure why I felt compelled to put this out here, and even after all of this commentary, I'm going to take a moment to share my prevailing thoughts. I may be wrong, but I'm following the well-known principle that the simplest answer is often the right answer. So here goes, and a drum roll please. If a pesticide kills pests and it harms the honeybee, it is having an impact. The disclaimer that pesticides killed pests, but that the bee is not killed nor harmed by these pesticides is nonsense. Sublethal doses eventually become lethal or they become so detrimental that they kill the bees by some other means. Is it the smoking gun for CCD? I have no idea, but in my opinion, Sometime in the next five years, these classes of pesticides will go the way of DDT and other caustic agents out there. They'll be regulated out of existence. There, I said it. I could be wrong and may take this back someday, but for now, given all the evidence out there, I'm just waiting for someone to come out like France did and call it what it is. Okay, time to put my X-Files theme to bed. Before I forget, Phil Chandler's podcast can be found at www.biobees.com. In addition to the podcast Phil creates, he's also known as an expert on top bar hives and organic beekeeping. Very highly recommended.
Time to get to the term of the day or term of the episode. It is Invertees. This is segment number four, the final segment of the podcast, and we're going to expand this to explain a little bit about how honeybees convert nectar to sugar. So someone asked me the other day, how do bees make honey? In a roundabout way, I knew the answer. They collect the nectar, they store it in the cell, they dry it to a certain percentage, but bees also do something to convert it chemically, but what exactly, I can't say that I'm sure. So that takes us to the term of the day, which is invertees. I was reading a Mid-Atlantic Apicultural Research and Extension Consortium book, Marek, as it's known around here, I have on beekeeping when I came across this term in the glossary. Call it serendipity, but the word was invertase, an enzyme produced by honeybees which they add to nectar to break down the sucrose to glucose and fructose glucose and fructose, the sugars of honey. So it seems there has to be more to it than this. The bee has to take in the nectar or chew on it or something in order to process it, so more detail is needed. Off to the internet for research. Research indicates that the invertase enzyme is commonly attributed to the bee and how it factors into making honey is that the nectar collected by the foraging bee is mixed with secretions from the salivary and hypopharyngeal glands. The nectar is stored in a special compartment called the honey crop or as it's better known as the honey stomach. This is a chamber that sits at the front of a bee's abdomen and right behind the juncture of the thorax. It's what allows the bee to transport the nectar to the hive without digesting it. The crop has a muscular valve called the proventriculus which the bee can close to keep it from passing nectar back through to the actual stomach. So nectar varies from plant to plant and can be made up of varying compounds, amino acids, vitamins, alkaloids, flavonoids, and even minerals. It also contains about 80% water and bees need to convert the formula of nectar that they picked up in order to keep it from or prevent it from fermenting. Upon return to the hive, the foraging bee regurgitates the already modified nectar to a hive bee where they ingest it and process it further. I didn't promise this would be pleasant. <laughs> like the concept of no wine before it's time, some slogan for a winery on television when I was a kid, when ready, the hive bee will transfer the inverted nectar into the comb. The end of the journey requires the bees to lower the moisture content of the honey to around 15% moisture content. Once it's ready, the bees will cap it off, and that is a detailed answer on how bees convert nectar to honey. Okay, so here's that by-the-way moment that I keep mentioning. We said in the definition of invertase that this enzyme breaks down the sucrose and glucose into sugars. As a component of breaking down the glucose, gluconic acid is formed. Gluconic acid reduces the pH of honey to the acidic range and makes it inhospitable for microbes. This is a good thing and is the reason that honey found in the times of the pharaohs is still consumable. 
There is a chance, however, that the honey does contain dormant endospheres of some bacteria, and these endospheres are responsible for the warning not to feed honey to infants as they can transform into a toxic producing bacteria that can lead to illness or even death. This brings to close our term of the day, how do they make honey segment, but I'm going to share this little factoid to close out this component of the show. Have you ever stopped to wonder how they coat chocolate covered cherries, you know the kind with the cherry in the middle and the melted liquid and then the chocolate. If you tried to make that and you poured chocolate over a liquid, it just wouldn't work. Well, here's the trick. They take the cherry and they cover it with sugar mixed with invertase, and then they dip it in chocolate. And after a while, that liquid layer is formed. It needs at least a couple days to a couple weeks in storage so that the invertase can do its work. How cool is that? Since we're only a few days from Valentine's Day, maybe it's a good idea to go get yourself some chocolate-covered cherries. If it can't be honey, because chocolate's the right thing to do on Valentine's Day, give them something with a little invertase in it and you can tell this story. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Beekeeper's Corner. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And I'll let you know that I'd be interested in hearing if you had any beekeeping topics that you'd like to see us cover. Or if you have something interesting to share, maybe a craft or, or something you do, maybe we could do a Skype interview. Send your suggestions to kevin at bkcorner.org. I can't promise I'll get to everything, but whatever you can send my way, we'll see if we can find those topics of interest to bring on our future episodes. That's it for now. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner. Bye, everyone.